All right, well, we're recording now for the sake of those who haven't been able to come to the class. And so, there you go. Thank you, Mike. And I guess the recordings have been a hit. I've had a few people tell me they're really glad. So, you know, think about what you're saying because you're on the recording too. I've even added special equipment just to make sure that you're on the recording too. I was really pleased with the equipment though because after hearing the recording from last week, it really sounds good. I mean, all right. That's what this is. We got uh, some office furniture a couple of years ago from Kimball that they, they were repurposing one of their spaces and they gave us some used office furniture and a lot of it came with boxes of hardware and among those boxes was this conference phone system. And I sort of figured out a couple of weeks ago that we could probably use it to record even if it doesn't have a phone connected to it. And it turns out I was right. So we have a nice quality recording now. And those of you who are down there speaking can be heard as well. And that's a real benefit to the ones who are listening. So, so I'm just going to repeat our goal for this class. And, and you know, as we go along, you'll begin to understand why I keep saying it each time. Our goal for the class is to obtain a better understanding of the core differences between Israel and between Israel and Islam. Okay, that's that's the goal of the class. And as we move forward, it'll become more important that we stay on track with that goal because there's a lot of things we could talk about, and I want to help us to accomplish what we set out to accomplish. So that I'll just restate that. I want to pick up kind of where we left off, but with with a little more detailed review. So let's think about the life of Ishmael for now. You remember that Ishmael was circumcised at the same time that Abraham was. You remember when God said, Abram, your name is now Abraham, and we have a covenant, you and me, and a sign of that covenant is that all your males will be circumcised. And so everybody, every male in Abram's household became circumcised, including Ishmael. And that's stated in uh, Genesis 16. And we also talked a little bit about how at least one rabbi I know is convinced that Ishmael did it himself, but I haven't been able to verify that, which doesn't mean that he doesn't have a valid reason for saying that. But the important thing is, is to recognize that Ishmael is a character that people of Israel still revere and still admire. They think highly of him. He's a guy that had the blessing on him because of the circumcision, which made him part of God's covenant with Abraham. And even though Ishmael has a lot of strange characteristics that we're going to talk about tonight, he does eventually come around in a way that tells us that, you know, you never get too far from where you came from. You know, we're, we're all, you know, part of our family of origin. There's a lot more about us that we have in common with the people in our lineage than we ever really believe or sometimes want to believe, right? But then you get an old picture. I have a family, uh, a cousin, who is, a, is the family genealogist and he has a whole bunch of pictures and every Monday he posts a new picture and I only pay attention when it's the ones that are descendants of my mother because his mother and my mother were sisters. So when he puts up the ones about his mother uh, or his mother's husband's family, he's like, well, I don't know who those people are. But when it's my mother's 
family, I get interested. And I've seen pictures of, of my grandfather, Andrew, and I've seen pictures of my grandmother, Edna, and I've seen pictures of their grandparents, and I've seen pictures of my, my mother and her siblings. And you know what? I can see shades of myself and my children in those pictures. You know, and, and that's really pretty amazing when you consider, and then you find out, you know, I told you all the story, but some of you may not have heard this. Um, my father was raised Catholic and I was raised Catholic. My mother was Catholic, but we found out, uh, oh, probably 25, 30 years ago, we found an old obituary. My father's grandfather was a Methodist. He was a evangelist and, and a organ salesman. He, he sold organs. Uh, <laughs> Got to be really specific in our times. In those days, that only meant musical instruments. <laughs> you know. So he sold, he sold the instruments we call organs. And he, uh, he actually died in French Lick in 1929 uh, from an illness while he was there. Um, preaching at a revival and singing, you know. And what's really funny is, is that nobody in my family, least of all my parents, had any idea. And yet, here I am, working at the Methodist church, doing the Methodist thing. I, I like to sing. I'm not like a soloist or anything, but I can sing, you know, carry a tune in a bucket at least. And, you know, it's just funny. It's just that they have this thing in common with my great-grandfather that I never knew. And you see things like this all the time. And so it's important when we talk about the, the traits of family throughout Scripture that there's a significance to it. I brought my Holman's Bible Dictionary. This weighs a ton. But if you don't have a Bible Dictionary, you can go out and buy one for probably 75 bucks. But you can also look at all this stuff online, too. Most of it's available if you just try. But I've had this thing since before the internet. In fact, we had cockatiels and one of them munched on it, as you can see right there. Um, but you know, I like the fact that my bird was chewing the word, you know. But um, I'm gonna talk about this thing a little bit here in a minute and we're going to see how important it is to, to you know, check your sources on things. But what you're going to find is, is that if you read, like, you know, we're talking about reading the Bible in 90 days. You know, one of the number one complaint that I always hear when people start reading the Bible in 90 days or just reading the Bible is they hate the begats. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And then all the names have lots of and, and stuff like that in it. And it's just tough, you know. And they say, well, what's the point? Why do I read all this? Do you know that if you'll read through the begats, and, and you know, if you're trying to finish the Bible in 90 days, my recommendation is just blow through that the best you can. But if you ever want to study, and I'm going to show you a little example of this tonight, look at the begats that you hate to read and look up every name in a Bible dictionary and watch what happens. It'll blow you away. Because... Like if you look up the descendants of Jacob and you look up the descendants of Esau, all the descendants of Esau, their names mean things like dirty, rotten scoundrel, <laughs> grubby, smelly man, you know, eats raw meat, 
you know, uh, he with many children and not as many wives or whatever, you know, just really bizarre things like that. And then you read all the names in the descent in the lineage of uh, Jacob, and it's like, you know, speaks to God, you know, uh, writer of wisdom, you know, whatever. And so there's a reason they're telling you these names. They're passing that information on to you. In, in, the, in the oral tradition of the Bible, which is much more ancient than the written version, there's a reason for everything that's in there. There's nothing in here that doesn't appear without a purpose. And even all those names have a purpose. And part of the thing, part of what happens with those names is, is that those people are familiar with it. So let me just say this, like, like to give you an example. Now, I'm going to name some people that most of us will be familiar with, even though none of us have ever met them. Um, George Washington, to give you a good vibe. Benedict Arnold, to give you a negative vibe. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. Jesse James. Mm-mm. Right? Um, uh, uh, Billy Graham. He's no longer living. Most of us have never met him. So, so there are names that we're familiar with, even names that go back hundreds of years. You know, Most of us are familiar with the names of some of the people who were in the original colonies. Right? We, we know about... Uh, uh, the, the founding fathers of our, of our, our uh, well, our denomination. You know, if I say Charles Wesley, John Wesley, most of you know that. But so imagine then that you're hearing an oral representation of the story of, of uh, Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham and Isaac. And you're hearing this spoken and then they go, and then, you know, Ishmael had... 12 sons, and one son was so-and-so, and all the kids in the audience go, boo, you know what I mean? Because they know, just when they hear the name, what that means. So we lose that because we're so far removed from it in so many ways. So getting something like a Bible dictionary out and doing it, it brings that back to life for you. And we're going to see that here in a few minutes. So continuing to review, we need to give Julie one of each of these so pass these down please until they get to her thank you and this is tonight's study material the second page is a bonus thing i hope i get to might have to do it after george leaves that'll teach him (laughs) i know that you're talking about all the begats but i like the lineage in matthew one because it's pretty concise and it just goes from abraham to jesus yeah, and that's and that's a pretty interesting one, and a lot of them we have studied in the Bible studies here in the last few semesters. That's right. What do what do you do when you find out for the first time that uh, Rahab was an ancestor of Jesus? Rahab the prostitute was the ancestor that Ruth the Moabite was an ancestor of Jesus. You mean Moabites made it into the lineage of Jesus? They sure did. And yet when you read forward from the Genesis, you find out the Moabites, yeah, they're still not as bad as the Philistines, but you know what? <laughs> There's some rotten ones. <laughs> so, and, and honestly, the Bible, you know, even though we don't like this sort of uh, stereotyping and all that, the Bible stereotypes a lot. It really does. And I don't think that's justification for stereotyping. I'm not going to assume, you know, for example, that... that uh, uh, you know, 
every person who goes to Methodist church. I just talked with a young lady in our church who's trying to argue with her boyfriend who goes to a very conservative church about whether or not the King James Bible is the only one, right? <laughs> and she wanted Pastor Dan to help her figure out how to refute his arguments. And I said, well, first of all, just show him a whole lot of grace, you know, because you're not going to win the argument by, you know, you never try to, to break a walnut with the sledgehammer because that just drives it into the ground. You know, you got to go in there with the fine instruments and crack the thing open. That's, so I always remind people, you know, if you want to talk to somebody that you really care about and try to help them understand something for you, from your point of view and you want to better understand their point of view, then be methodical and careful about it and, and listen more than you speak and, and then affirm what you're hearing and then counter it in some way or another. That's a much more gentle and effective way to talk about things you disagree over. But, but anyway, um, you know, when we're disagreeing about things like the language of the Bible and everything, the most important thing we can focus on is that the stereotypes are meant not so much to say that virtually everyone who's a descendant of Ishmael is rotten or whatever, or everybody who's descended from Esau is bad, but those lineages tell you that, well, but for the most part, with a few exceptions, you know, um, I just learned yesterday where Frogtown is. <laughs> Someone told me there's a little place in, in uh, Jasper that's called Frogtown. And I thought, I love things like that because then you have to ask yourself, so what did the people who lived here 75 years ago think of people who lived in Frogtown? Was it true 100% of the time? Good, bad, or otherwise? Probably not. But was it generally accurate? Probably. Or the reputation wouldn't happen. You know, so... All right, here we go. Uh, so point number two here is uh, like God promised that Ishmael would be the father of a great nation. God said that he would be a donkey of a man. I have really been busy this week, and I actually wrote these notes on the fly this today uh, between tasks. And so I didn't get to research it, but I want to know what the original language in the Hebrew, what donkey of a man means, and I didn't really get there. But what would you guess it means when it calls him a donkey of a man? Stubborn. stubborn. You know, I had an old farmer tell me one time the donkeys aren't stupid and stubborn. They're actually smarter than horses because a horse will just work itself to death, but a donkey knows when to quit. And one of the reasons they're so stubborn about moving is that they ain't moving when they realize they're too tired to move. A horse will just work till it collapses, but a donkey stops. Does it make them stubborn, and does it make them smart enough to know their limits? I don't know what this means about Ishmael, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. What do you think they thought about donkeys? You can't train them. they got their own mind. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, it's sort of like the difference between cats and dogs. I have had both. I enjoy both. <laughs> Cats, basically, you're just cooperating with them. And then petting them for the sheer pleasure of providing them with comfort. Like, it's just the strangest thing. You're cooperating with your cat. Your dog is just dying to please you, you know. You know, there's an old prayer, you know, the, the Lord, make me the kind of person my dog thinks I am, right? You know? If I said, Lord, make me the kind of person my cat thinks I am, I think I'd be asking for some trouble, you know. We're basically just their food source. That's right, that's right. They tolerate us because we give them what they want. I always heard a joke that if you want to 
Put your dog and your wife in the trunk of the car, leave them there for an hour, open the trunk and see who's glad to see you. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Okay, well, so moving right along. I think that I think that what we're going to discover this evening is is that that part about being pretty untrainable and 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 ornery is a very good uh, connection point. So, and and it says that in it, it part of the prophecy about Ishmael is is that he will be against everybody and against everybody will be against him. So where does he hang out? It says in the prophecy he hangs out with his own. You know. You know why people join gangs, and I'm talking like the really strange and mysterious, why people join the kind of cults that lead to 9-11 attacks and things like that. Why do they do that? Because they want to be around people that play by the same kinds of rules they do. And honestly, there aren't as many who play the way some people do. And so you have to really go out of your way to join a group that you can relate to if you have a really hard time getting along with most people, you know, if, if you think about people you've known over the years, I mean, just, you know, my 40th reunion's coming up and, and little by little people from my class are appearing on our reunion page on the internet. And, and it's like, man, I remember that guy, you know, and sounds like he turned out just like we thought he would. That's what some have been saying about me, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> like, yeah, if you saw it, I sure didn't. But, but anyway, the, the reality is that there were those people that you just knew were never going to fit in. They were just too much on their own page doing their own thing. And yet, you look at our 40th reunion page and they're involved in like a motorcycle club or something and they have a wife and, or they have a husband and they raise children and you, know, and you thought, man, they didn't fit in with very many people, but they found some people to fit in with, you know. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as we read this because that's basically what it says Ishmael's going to be. It's going to be a kind of guy that doesn't get along real well with the majority, but he'll find people that he's like-minded with. Um, I want to come back to something I talked about last week because I want to take it a little bit further. And, and I told George this morning when we were having a, a, a church-related meeting about uh, staff parish affairs and all that, I said, you know, I'm troubled because in our class... I'm trying to speak in general terms about things that I take for granted that, you know, I want to be really conscious of the fact that some of the things I'm telling you are easy for me to, to, to believe. And I'm not saying because I'm smarter or anything, but because I, I'm in this all the time and I've been in this all the time for decades. So there are things that I hear that I, oh yeah, I, I can see that. But then I'm trying to tell you some of these things, and I have to be really thoughtful about how you're hearing it. So I want you to know I'm, very, I'm trying to be conscious of how you might hear some of these things. So I actually held off last week on this one. So I'm going to tell you something now about Isaac and Ishmael and the real reason why Sarah said, that's it, he's got to go. All right? You remember that we talked a little bit about how Isaac was probably... A really bad influence or Ishmael was a really bad influence on Isaac we already know you know that when so so there's the passage in uh, chapter uh, 
20, 1920 and 21, basically, this, it's kind of a cross-section, but it describes how when, um, when Isaac was weaned, there was a celebration. Well, this one really requires some translation to understand what's going on, and it doesn't mean you can't get there without doing all this research, but it's far more interesting and far more telling about today's times if you can get there. What it really meant is, and, and this is something that's in Rabbi Lappin's literature, the word for what they describe in your English language Bible as weaning is actually camel. Okay, the word is camel. And if you hear the word camel in the Old Testament especially, it either refers to an animal that's being used for some purpose or if it's used sort of as an adverb or, or as, as something like that, then what it's saying is, is that um, he's reached the point where, like a young camel, it's able to be on its own. And what can camels do that most other animals can't do? They can go out on their own and survive for long periods of time in the desert because they've got this capacity for living off of what they ate three weeks ago and living off of the water they've retained from three weeks ago. So the word communicates a value of reaching your day of independence. That's the point. So with that in mind, keep this passage or think about what happened. On the celebration of Isaac's coming of age, when he becomes recognized as an adult, they call it a bar mitzvah now, but this was pre Bar mitzvah. This was before they had a word for that, right? And this is a statement saying that about the time that Isaac came of age and Abraham was celebrating because he was moving his little boy out of mama's house and into the, the, the man's world, you know, and he, that's how it worked in those days. The women raised the little ones, and when the little ones came of age, they pretty much got handed off to the men, and they were going to learn the man's trade. They were going to learn the rules of manhood and how to do the man's life in this like nomadic sort of Bedouin culture. And so they're celebrating that he's come of age, which means he's probably somewhere between 10 and 13 years old, give or take, he's probably 12 or 13 years old. And remember <coughs> that Ishmael's about 13 years old. So Ishmael's about 13 years older than Isaac. So what's that make him? You know, he's in his 20s. Well, if there's a guy that can get a young boy or a young girl in all kinds of trouble, it's the one that's in his 20s and you're in your teens. I'm just telling you, it's as old as the human condition. You know, there's nothing more. You know, when, when I was uh, raising my kids, that was always my fear that my, my kids would start running with somebody who was a lot older than them because that usually always leads to trouble. And this was the case, but here's what's really <coughs> fascinating. The Bible says that at the coming of age party, Ishmael was overheard mocking Isaac. Well, the word for mocking in Hebrew, the word in the original language is mesahek. Uh, mesahek. It's probably mesahek because that's how they do ages. But I just ate and I don't want to do anything this, you know, disgusting. Mesahek is a Hebrew word that describes lovemaking, idol worship, and faithless mockery. So this word appears in Genesis 
when uh, the people, when, when Moses is up on the mountain, and it's a word that kind of means play, like they were playing, okay? And it's, it's a word that describes when Moses is up on a mountain, they built the golden calf and they made the idol and they worshiped it all night and they had a drunken orgy basically. And then the next morning they got up and they mesechek and they, they played. They, they were exercising a fruitless, faithless form of worship. Another place this word appears is in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When uh, Lot is trying to, or Abraham has sent Lot, and Lot's trying to convince his two soon-to-be sons-in-law, you need to get your girls and get out of town right now. They mess a heck. They mocked him. And again, it's describing a faithlessness. It's, it's not just mockery. Um, it's, it's like blasphemy, you know? Um, it's one thing to question religious beliefs and, and even the things that we really hold sacred. It's, it's, not, it's not blasphemy for somebody to question that, to say, I just don't know why that's true or why I should believe it. But there are people who are very sure that they are intentionally blaspheming and they're doing it with that in mind. And this is what this is supposed to. They're saying, God, we think you really let us down. Now think about the Egyptian uh, exodus. Think about the Israelites after exodus. What was their problem? They kept wanting to go back to the gods of Egypt. Remember that the 10 plagues, all but one of them was directed right at the gods of Egypt. And why was this done? It was to show the people of Israel that this is your God, not them, not that pointy-headed dude over there called Pharaoh. That's not God. I'm God. So each one of the plagues was meant to demonstrate God's superiority over all of those gods. But then... They get out there into the wilderness, and the first thing they want to do is, is say, oh, God let us down, you know, this God. So their problem is that they really have no concept of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Moses, the God of, of all creation, the one that we worship with such reverence. They have no concept of that. They cannot think of this God as being anything other than some sort of silly God that, you know, well, you pray to this God for that, and you pray to that God for this, and, and you know, it's sort of luck and superstition with them, and, and, and it, I don't know if it makes sense, but it's really hard for them to wrap their mind around this, and so many of them, as soon as anyone causes them to lose even a little bit of the faith that they got in Yahweh, they immediately want to go back to the false gods, and they want to do this frivolous Mechek, or mechek, yeah, that, mesechek, right? So it's a mesechek. They are getting into a mesechek, and they're going to have a lot of trouble. And then another place where we see this word appear, and, and this is where we get the whole lovemaking thing, is that there are a couple of places where in the Hebrew someone is described, and there's a place where, where um, I can't think of who the king was, but... Uh, Isaac and his wife Rebecca are playing the same trick on the king that Abraham and his wife played on the king of saying, "Oh no, she's just she's just a you know she's my sister, right?" And and then this king happens to glance into their window one night and looks to him like mess of heck's going on, <laughs> and this makes him doubt that they're brother and sister <laughs> for good reason. 
So the whole point for this is, is to say, you see, whenever Ishmael was talking to Isaac, he was talking about awful things. He was mocking God. He was mocking, you know, the bird. You know, I, I mean, let's face it. If this guy's the kind of person he seems to be at this stage of his life, he's probably making fun of Isaac's ancient parents and how in the world did they ever get you? And, you know, that must have been a sight. And I'm, I'm you know, just, this is why Sarah says, uh-uh, he's got to go. This she wasn't is, just jealous. It wasn't that at all. She was worried about her son, the, the character of her son. She's worried about what was going to become of him. And that's a huge difference. It's a really big difference. Uh, Genesis 21, that's where I want to go this week. And so let me see here. Genesis 21 in my big fat Bible here. Genesis 21. Uh, let's see. All right, the birth of Isaac. We, we kind of got that. I want to jump ahead here. Um, down to 21, verse 8. Okay, the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because he, uh, it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So who's right in this case, fellas? And Mama was right about it big time because God came along and said, uh, for the record, I've already talked this over with Abraham. He should know better. For the record, Hagar is a slave. That hasn't changed. She's always been a slave. I thought she was an Egyptian princess. But in Abraham's house, she's become a slave. That's mm -hmm. her role. And that's, and, and twice she's had to be reminded you're a slave, you know, because her role has changed. And, and so then it goes on. Um, I, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. So he's, he's God's promised I, uh, Abraham that, that Ishmael is part of the covenant, that he's going to get uh, rewards Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Then the water in the skin, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under the bushes. And then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away from, uh, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. As, uh, and as she sat there, she began to sob. We talked about this a little bit last week. What mother would do that, seriously? You know, if your child is suffering and you figure they're gonna die any minute now, what are you gonna do? I don't care if he's 25 years old, he's your little boy, right? You know, I know a lot of older people whose greatest nightmare is outliving their children. 
I've met a lot of them who have outlived their children. And I'll tell you, when their children were dying, even if their child was 70 and they were 90, they were holding that baby's hand because this is my little boy, this is my little girl. That's what moms do, you know? Yes? Another thing I just noticed, and do not let me see the boy. Yeah. Do not let me see my son. Yeah, um, she's detached herself from him. So that's, that to me is yeah, cold. Yeah, there's something really off about that, isn't there? And then she began to sob. And God heard the boy crying. God heard the boy crying. Last thing we hear is she began to sob, but God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand. Isn't that sad? God had to tell her to do that. And we're talking about how we can't imagine not doing that. For I will make him into a great nation. Do you not remember that God made that promise? That's, you know, it's like, does, if there's nothing else we can know absolutely for sure about God, the one thing we can be certain of is God always keeps God's promises. We're, to this very day, we're seeing the testimony of God's faithfulness to God's promises, even promises that were made 4,000 years ago. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she sat down and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So, God's providence was with Ishmael. That's clearly stated here. And God's even providing for Ishmael by forcing his mother to take responsibility for him, which is sad and interesting all at the same time. Um, and given what you know about what God has said already about Ishmael, so think about it, donkey of a man, always at odds with other people, you know, kind of hangs with the crowd that gets him, probably a crowd that does what he says. You've ever been a part of a, of a bunch like that? You know, every time they pull a game together on the playground or something, they immediately take charge, pick the teams, tell you what we're going to play and how long we're going to play it. And, and you know, there's a certain people that just, they're not being leaders. They're just bossy. They just like doing things their own way, you know. And then when you say, and then they'll tell you they're democratic. Like, I've met them when they were adults. These people turn into adults and they'll go, well, I don't agree with where we're going on this. And you say, well, that's all right. We're going to go this direction anyway. Well, fine, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's like, if you're not going to do it my way, I'm done, right? Well, that seems to be what Ishmael's all about. He, he doesn't like having it anyway, but his way. So given what we know about him, how can we interpret this description of him becoming an archer? Why is the Bible telling us that he became an excellent archer? What is the significance of that, do you think? Maybe it's part of what makes him a great nation. You've read my notes. You read ahead, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly archery is useful both in hunting and in war. Yeah, I mean, in those days, this is a really important technology. Um, most of the fighting is hand-to-hand, -hand, but with an archery, with, with skills in archery, you can shoot your enemy from a distance or your prey. 
Yeah. So the next question is, and somebody's already answered it, how does this, how do you think this archery skill is part of how he was shaped into a great nation? Take a wild guess. Somebody already did. I'm having fun with you because I like you. Just remember that. I, I don't talk to people I don't like. I mean, he has to survive in order to get there. Yeah. So he's got a real survival instinct. He's got skill that provides for his needs. Imagine how he felt after he recovered from his near-death experience and realized his mother didn't do anything to help him. You think he became an independent kind of guy, like, like even more so? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, hey, when you're in a jam, ain't nobody going to get you out of this pickle but you. Just keep that in mind. You ever met anybody like that? There's only one person in your world you can really count on, son. You. I can just hear him talking to his little boys, all 12 of them. But they probably also developed a certain military capacity because in this case, archery is meant to be a way of communicating a military quality because in, in this case, it would, if it were written in the modern English, it would say something like, he became an expert with all manner of firearms. You know, he could shoot with his right hand and his left hand. He could shoot double barrel, single barrel. He could draw with both hands. He was like Clint Eastwood in every (laughs) cowboy movie he ever made. You know, that's how it might have read. And that's what the point is. So it kind of tells you where this nation's headed. Um, Now I want you to do something... um, Read Genesis 25, 13. Genesis 25, 13. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth. Nebaioth. Pastor Dan's pronunciation guide for the Bible. Spell it like it looks like. Because that's what they did. When they translated these words and things to English, they wrote them phonetically. Only thing, and this isn't vital to getting it right for any other cause than if you're just nitpicky, and I get that way sometimes. When you think about those who translated it to English, they did everything with long vowels. Or, you know, it was, it was always A, E, A, O, U. You know what I mean? Like when you learn a foreign language. So they would have said something along the lines of, Nebaioth, okay? Ishmael, uh, firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedma, Kedama. Those are his 12 sons. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlement and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area of Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher, and they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Fascinating. 
get out your big, fat, heavy Bible dictionary picked apart by Arthur the... I almost said parakeet, but Arthur was a cockatiel. He and I used to talk and whistle together all the time. Look up Kadar. Okay, Kadar. Kadar. All right. I just looked up the wrong one. It's a good thing I use bookmarks. I don't know when I did this, but it was sometime this afternoon. Kedar. Kedar, it says for pronunciation. Personal name meaning mighty or swarthy or black. The second son of Ishmael and the grandson of Abraham. The name occurs later in the Bible, presumably as a reference to a tribe that took its name from Kedar, the Kedarites, which is in 1 Chronicles. Little concrete information is known about the group. However, apparently the descendants of Kedar occupied the area south of Palestine and east of Egypt. They may best be described as nomadic, living in tents and raising sheep and goats, as well as camels, which they sold as far away as Tyre. The Kedarites were led by the prince, uh, by princes, and were famous for their warriors, particularly their archers. They evidently were of some importance during the time of Isaiah, because it mentions them in Isaiah 21:16. And here's something else. Was this my parents gave me this like 35 or 40 years, uh, 35 or 40 years ago? So. It's, there are new things that aren't in here. Muhammad is considered uh, a descendant of the Kedarites, the prophet Muhammad. Isn't that interesting? So... They don't worship him. I mean, they say they don't. And we're going to get into that. We'll actually talk about uh, Islam at some point in the future. But, but just so you know, they would consider that uh, an abomination, you know, to worship him. But then they treat him like an idol because they throw a bloody fit if a cartoonist makes a picture of him or somebody burns him in effigy or anything like that. So, you know. But then we're kind of the same way. You know, we get mad when somebody takes a picture off the wall at the church that's got a little brass plaque on it that's been in that same spot for 60 years and somebody says you know i think we ought to take that down and paint that wall and while it's down they go you know we could put something a lot better looking there and then you do and next thing you know people that you thought were long dead come out of the woodwork because this rumor's gone around that aunt martha's picture she donated in 1904 isn't there anymore and isn't that just like idol worship Yeah, it's funny. Are the, you know the little angel statues and stuff they can buy at the store? Are those considered idols? Like if you get a statue of Jesus or something, that's not really an idol. An idol would be something that you I think it depends on how you treat it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it it really depends on you. We were digging in our front flower bed about a year ago, planting some bulbs and things, and came across a little plastic Joseph. <laughs> Apparently that's why we bought the house. We didn't know it, but it was because Joseph was laying upside down with his head pointed towards the house and that's all it takes. 
<laughs> I attended, well, I didn't attend, I was familiar with, because it was out of the Arts Center, a New Testament church that actually wouldn't allow crosses or anything because they considered all of that idolatry. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because the first big division in the church universal was in the 300s, about 310. And this is where we get the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Catholic Church, and, uh, or the, the Byzantine Church or, and the Roman Church. And that split was over the nature of icons and images. And the funny thing is you go to Catholic Church, it looks like they got a lot of icons and images there, but there's a difference. Um, Sometimes the practitioners of the faith don't know the difference, but the experts will tell you that if you go to a, if you go to a, a Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox church, if there's an icon in there, it's got powers of its own somehow. That, you know, it, it's been somehow enabled to be something in and of itself. But then a lot of Catholic tradition says, you know, this statue of Mary weeps sometimes and things like that. And so people worship this, you know. Again, it's all about where your head is. I mean, to, to go before a cross and, and meditate on, you know, like I've had non-Catholics tell me back when I was a Catholic and I was a kid in Oklahoma, I've had them say, well, how come your cross has got a dead body on it? And the answer I always give them is, not a bad reminder, really, of what Christ did for us. And the fact is that reminder hangs over the altar, which is a reminder to us that this is the last sacrificial offering, you know, and that, well... Our Jesus is risen, and I said, so is mine. You know, <laughs> this is pretty funny how that happens. But it really comes down to what you think. You know, you have to decide when you think about things, what they mean to you. And uh, I think I can get this done before George has to leave. There's one thing I want to, I see a typo in here. It shows you that I did this at the last minute right before I take Ruthie to a doctor's appointment. Where is Ishmael's final play in the his last appearance in the Bible? I just wanted to see if anybody could figure that out, you know, and that's what we just read. Yeah, that word is a typographical error, is what it is. But now this uh, add-on sheet that I gave you, this is a whet your appetite for next week. We'll get into this more next week. But look at the add-on sheet. This is from Rabbi Lappin himself. First of all, remember the Hebrew reads from right to left. And uh, I have one scholar say, and I think this is true. I, I've never tested it, but I, have, I heard one scholar say that if you've ever paid any attention to it, you'll notice that the written languages of the world, uh, every, every, language, every written language that appears in countries that are west of... Jerusalem, they write, they read from left to right, but the written languages of countries that are in to the east of Jerusalem all write from right to left. Bye, George. So that's all right. We're not going to let you do that. So there's just something you know. It's kind of interesting and and seems like it's true, but you know. So next week we'll get into this a little bit more, but I wanted to whet your appetite. Because this is what I was talking to George about this morning. How do I tell a wide variety of people about something that's fairly easy for me to accept because I've been listening to and reading about this stuff for years? 
And so it's easy for me to accept because it balances against all of that, but maybe you've never heard anything like this before and I'm just throwing it out there, you know, so what happens? This is a good example. Have any of you ever heard of Kabbalah? You've heard of Kabbalah. Have you ever heard of numerology? They're kind of the same thing. This is where people, and it's occultism of, of a kind, because this is where people will go through scripture and, and it's like a, a, a word search puzzle, you know, and, and, and it, the, the problem with this occult version of it is, is they'll take an NIV Bible or a King James Bible or whatever and they'll go, look at that. Here's the word the, and here's the word air, and over here's the word plain, and then here's the word will, and then, you know, they find a sentence that they've made happen in the scripture that says the airplane will crash into the Twin Towers. They say, See, it's in here, you know. That is numerology. That's Kabbalah, and it's, it's based in something that's legitimately true about Hebrew scripture, but it isn't the same thing. And I'm speaking in super general terms and I'm trying to do it in five minutes or less, so forgive me. What I want you to know that I know and believe with my heart is true is that there are all kinds of wonderful mysteries in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, which are the five books of the law. And there are certain words that appear and they're very systematic in their appearance and they're not accidental. And in that document I gave you, you see the Hebrew word for Ishmael. And what you'll find is, is that in Deuteronomy 17, 12, Ishmael's name appears in a sentence that describes how the people will act presumptuously and will not listen to the priest. And then his name appears again in the text, not because he's the subject of the text, but because his name's been encoded in there. And his name appears in chapter 19 or chapter 18, verse 19, it says that they shall come, it'll come to pass that a man who will not listen to my words. And Yishmael is in there, in the sentence, encoded in there. And you could say, well, that's just a coincidence. It would be if you could find his name in other places in the Bible and there wasn't any relevance to it. If you could just find his name in other places, but you got to remember these rabbis, man, they've been studying. The, the rabbis can tell you exactly how many letters there are in the Torah. Letters, you know. Nope, I don't know anybody in Waynetown, Indiana. Probably want to sell me some kind of service plan for my car. Either that or timeshare. So um, there's one other place. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and when they discipline him, will not listen to them. And guess what? Encoded in the words, won't listen, will not listen, is the Hebrew spelling of the name Yishmael. And it doesn't appear that way anywhere else in the Torah, which is really interesting. Are you saying that the word Ishmael is the place that will not listen? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the sentence says one thing, and, and think so, about it so this way. To the ancient Hebrews, the word Ishmael would invoke that kind of thought process. Yeah. Think of a word that has words within it. I mean, I watch, um, I, I, I watch Jeopardy and I watch Wheel of Fortune sometimes, and, and there are words within words, right? 
there are words that say one thing when you spell them forward and say something when you spell them back, right? And, and yeah, it's kind of a coincidence. But if you knew that, if you could think of the Old Testament, and I actually heard a guy say this, he had been, he was a Christian, but he had been uh, a uh, government employee for years and he worked in encryption. Donna probably could relate to what I'm about to say. People who make up codes or decrypt codes will find patterns like that just without even trying that hard because it's just their nature. They'll just look at it and they'll go, there, look at that. Do you see that? That's what's happened in this case is that they've seen words within the words and they find that there's a pattern and it always appears in this particular pattern. So this is just to whet your appetite for next week, but isn't it fascinating to find out that associated with the name of Ishmael is this consistent problem of not being able to handle authority. Turns out he's a donkey of a man, like someone in this class said, because he's not easily trained and doesn't respond well to authority. When you think about various news stories throughout your life and you think about the major events of our times, have there been certain people groups that have been more prone to this sort of uh, resisting of authority and resisting of any kind of centralized government or I mean, just think, and I'm not trying to drive you towards Islam, but I'm just thinking, when have you seen, you know, one of the most horrible regimes of all time is the Nazis, but what did they have going for them? They were organized. They were systematic. They were scientific. I mean, it was scary how sophisticated they were. Can you say that about, you know, certain other historical figures who were known for their, you know, the Mongol hordes of Genghis Khan or somebody like that? You know, whenever you hear that there's really no discipline in the ranks and, and they barely have authority over their own people, much less responding to the authority of other, you know, if NATO says this is what we think is uh, best for all of us, what people don't play along with that, you know? Uh, I remember when Yasser Arafat appeared at in the United Nations. They made him keep his pistols outside the building, but he still had his holsters on. Really? Really? What is that supposed to mean exactly? You know, um, I remember several years ago when the uh, uh, peace agreements that were made with Arafat, among others, led to moving Israeli settlers out of Gaza. And big business people from America and other places in Europe donated millions of dollars to the departing Israel, Israel, uh, Israelis, right? I almost want to say Israelite, but that's kind of an ancient way to say it. But they gave them millions of dollars to leave greenhouses and farms and all of that intact because they believed that this would be a way to jumpstart the new Palestinian economy in Gaza. And as soon as the Israelis left, people went in and looted, burned, and destroyed all of it. Sounds like they didn't get it. I did a little reading a long time ago about um, the founding of Israel. And the original plan was for Palestine and Israel to be both be nations and to split the land and to both be nations. 
And Israel was fine with it, and the Palestinians said, and just just to be clear, because I we got to go, but I want to I want to say this because I don't want anybody to think that what I'm saying, first of all, is overly opinionated, and secondly, I don't want you to think that I'm like against a certain people group. But what I'm saying is is that you know because I'm amateur sociologist, it's always been a big part of my job as a pastor as I study people groups. I'm fascinated by the way people move and function and. And it all stems from the fact that I'm trying to help a variety of people with a variety of personalities all work together to accomplish something good for the glory of God. And if you're going to do that, you better study. And you will find that certain stereotypes are true. That's how they became stereotypes. Doesn't mean everybody who's an Arab is a wild, raving maniac. Guess what? There are 90,000 Arabs living in Nazareth which is really hilarious because that was a teeny tiny little village that nobody even knew, like, Nazareth, where's that? Galilee. Oh, okay. That's how it was when Jesus lived there. But 90,000 Arabs live in Nazareth, and they are Israeli citizens. And they peacefully pay their taxes and exist inside the country as a part of the country, and there's no problem. They're descended from the same people the Palestinians are, but the Palestinians, and we call them that by their own definition, because that's the name of the areas and the people, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, you know. So anyway, it's just interesting, because they're all descended from essentially the same roots, and yet, there's 90,000 people are just fine. You're not going to run into somebody that wants to destroy Israel there. They love it. Great place to live, you know. Fascinating. So please don't ever think that this discussion or anything like it is meant to stereotype or to generalize uh, every person is of sacred worth. Some people don't act like it, but God said that they were worth saving if they would just live into it. God bless you. We have a prayer Linda's going to do. You didn't think you were going to get off the hook, did you? Yeah. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful week. God bless you. Yes, ma'am.